in the news is kids that shoot and abuse. Nations at odds over borders and gods, or stories of you that shoot up and use. Dads with their toys neglecting their boys, and moms with their curls. What are we teaching our girls? The media's eyes grow hollow and cold as prophets soar from the horrors they've told. Every night at six from behind a tall desk, teaching me to fear that or fear this. I listen in fear to the stories I'm told. Oh, how I wish I could learn to fear less. Deep inside, not of my bones or my flesh, a still small voice calming my worry and stress. It says to me, fear not, for I've got all of this. Trust in me, my child, and live. So we are finishing up a series this morning called Fearless, and it's been pretty cool. I've enjoyed this, really just telling you some Bible stories, and we're at it again this morning. I just want to tell you a story and let the story speak for itself and let God's Word um, be that. But to get there, we're going to read the story or talk about really the story of Esther. Now, the story of Esther, if you've never heard this before, it kind of reads like a soap opera. And it's kind of hard to just tell the story. And there's some characters that kind of get crossed in between and um, at points hard to follow. But I want to lead into this with a a short little video. And this video that I'm going to show you comes from a group called The Bible Project. And if you haven't tapped into this resource yet, you really need to. If you're reading the Bible at times and you're wondering, I don't get it. This doesn't make sense to me. How is this all playing together? You need to go online to thebibleproject.com. This is where we got this. You can get to it from your Bible app. So if you haven't got your Bible app open, open your Bible app, get to Esther, um, and you can get some of their videos from there as well. But they do a good job introducing this, and then we'll take off from there and learn about Esther this morning. Let's watch this. The book of Esther, it's one of the more exciting and curious books in the Bible. The story is set over 100 years after the Babylonian exile of the Israelites from their land. And while some Jews did return to Jerusalem, remember Ezra and Nehemiah, many did not. And so the book of Esther is about a Jewish community living in Susa, the capital city of the ancient Persian Empire. The main characters in this story are two Jews, Mordecai and then his niece Esther. And then there's the king of Persia, who's something of a drunken pushover in this story. And then there's the Persian official Haman, the cunning villain. So here we go. Here's the setup to this. Now, to watch the rest of this video, it's about a nine-minute video, but it unpacks the whole book for you and gives you an understanding of how it even fits into the whole Bible. Um, it's a great video. I'd encourage you to go watch that um, later this afternoon. But here are four characters in this story about a woman in the Old Testament who took a stand and how she was fearless in her future, not knowing what was going to come, but here she was. And so here is Esther, and at the beginning of the story, we find out that her parents die. We don't know why or how, um, but her parents are not around, and her cousin, Mordecai, raises her. He's old enough, he adopts her, raises her as his own. So these are the two positive characters in the story. Now the king, he plays a pretty um, bad part at the beginning. Towards the end, he kind of turns around and makes a change in at least how the story goes. And then we have the evil villain, Haman, as part of the story. And so we're going to unpack all of these. Now the king, his name is Xerxes. King Xerxes, he's pretty good at a couple things. One, he's good at battles and fighting battles and winning wars. Of course, he's a king. And he's also good at partying. He's a He's good at throwing parties, of course, right? He's a king. Now, you and I, um, at least in my age right now, a good party might be this afternoon um, with some food and a first half of a football game, and then after halftime, I might go home and say, I can kind of get home. You know, it's getting late. I might watch the rest of the game at home. You know how it goes. You would get to that point where like, 
I've had enough. I'm good. Let, let's go. Now, back in our college days, maybe it was different. You started the party early afternoon, and it would last into the night or early the next morning. This guy, he knew how to throw, throw a party. His parties, this one particular, lasted seven days. Not just one evening into the next morning, seven days of partying. And he invited like 15,000 people to this party. So this was big. And it wasn't just a party for the people in his kingdom. He was inviting some um, his allies right next to him. So he had other kings that were there, and they, they were doing this. So the guys were having this party, the kings and some of the other guys. The ladies were inside having a more sophisticated party. But at the end of the seven days, he wanted to show off his wife, his queen, but not just in the sense of, hey, I want to introduce my wife to you guys. I want you to get to know my queen. And, you know, pleasant, nice, shake hands, nice to meet you. It was this. He called for his wife to come and parade in front of his drunken buddies. In fact, it was a proud thing. I want you to see my trophy wife and how beautiful she is. In fact, one commentator, I'm not, I'm not sure this is completely accurate. I didn't see it anywhere. This was his interpretation of it. Um, one guy, as he was writing about this, said that he asked his queen to come wearing only her tiara. So you get the idea, right? You get the picture here of how he's asking, why he's asking her to come. He just wants to show her off and her beauty. This queen, she stands up and she says, no. I'm not doing that, right? Thank goodness for her. She took a stand. She said, no, I'm not going to do it. Well, the rest of his buddies said, you can't let her do that. If she does that, all of our queens, all of our wives are going to stand up to us. So you've got to do something about it. So King Xerxes, the jerk, after being drunk for seven days, kicks her out of the kingdom. He banishes her from the kingdom and says, you're gone, Um, be gone. We never hear from her again. But a few years go by and the king says, hey, I'm kind of lonely. I need a queen. Well, the best way to get a queen at that time, I guess, was to throw a beauty pageant. So he wants to throw this beauty pageant to find the best queen to replace his old queen who is now gone. Well, Mordecai finds out about this. And remember as the intro here, Mordecai and Esther are Jews living in Persia. There's not many of them left. Most of them have gone back to their homeland and there's a few that are still here. Mordecai thinks this is a great idea. I think you should enter this pageant. So um, Esther enters this pageant. It doesn't take very long before she wins. I'm not even sure they finish the pageant before the king says that one. Her. I want her. She's beautiful. She's going to be the next queen. And she wins a beauty pageant. Um, And after she gets into the kingdom, she's now the queen. I, I can see how this works. Mordecai now isn't working at the palace. I don't know if she got him the job or how that works, um, but he is now working at the palace. So now here's Esther, the new queen, and Mordecai, who's also working in the palace, but he's in a job where he can hear rumors. The queen doesn't always hear this stuff, but he heard about a rumor that was going around that they were going to try and kill the king. King Xerxes, his life was in danger, and Mordecai knew it was happening, so he gets word back to the queen, who somehow, and we're not sure how, because we learn later, this is hard to do, she gets word to the king that his life is in danger, they've come up with a plan, and these guys are going to kill him. Well, they arrest the guys that are going to kill him, and Mordecai gets the credit. He gets the credit for unveiling this plan. And this is important to the story. We have to track this and follow this. This is important because... Um, Esther makes sure that it's written down in the log of the king, in his 
um, official records, it's written down that Mordecai saved the king's life by unveiling the plan, the plot to kill him. Hang on to that. We're going to get to that here in a little bit. All this time, and while this is going on, the beauty pageant and the plot to kill the king, there's another guy who comes on the scene, and his name's Haman. He's an evil villain, but he works his way up the ranks, and he becomes second in charge underneath King Xerxes. It's pretty important. In fact, it's so important to him that he makes everybody bow to him when he walks out in the street. So as Haman walks around, everybody's to bow to Haman. Not the king, but to Haman. He's got a pretty big ego. But here's what happens. He's walking down the street and everybody's bowing to him except Mordecai, who is a Jew. And Haman and his background and his family, they don't like the Jews. They're enemies of God and God's people, the Jewish people. So these are enemies and and Mordecai says, I'm not bowing to you. You're my enemy. I only bow to one and you're not him. I'm not going to do that. Well, this upsets Haman. He gets pretty disappointed in this. He gets pretty upset at this. And he tricks the king into signing a decree that says we're going to wipe out all the Jews. It'll be a holocaust. We'll give them a few months to leave the country though. You've got some time. You can leave or if you're still here in a few months we're going to kill you. That's your options. It'd be like today if we were to go home and sometime before the Super Bowl, and this isn't political, I'm just saying, if the United States government this afternoon made a decree that says all Christians By the end of this year, by the end of 2019, if you are still living in the United States and a Christian, you will die. But you've got got a few months. You can leave the country if you choose. You can get out or we're going to kill all the Christians. That would be the weight of that situation. All these Jews that were still there were then scared for their lives. Mordecai gets scared. He mourns. He rips his clothes. He goes into a time of mourning and prayer. And he knows he needs to do something to save not only his life, but his people. So this is where we pick up the story in chapter 4. He gets word back to Esther. And in chapter 4, verse 8, he is trying to write a note to give to somebody to take to the queen. Because he can't just walk into the queen anymore, even though he raised her. And he gives this to somebody, and it says... Urge her to go to the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for your people. Our people, beg for that. You can do this. Well, we learn after this that Esther knows the rules. And there's a law that says you can't just walk into the king. You can't just approach the king. If you do, it could mean death. How she got word to him about his life, well, that might have been a different story. His life was on the line, right? Now it's something else. And you don't just barge in and talk to the king. Something had to be set up. And she said, no, I'm not going to do it. It's not worth the risk. Because he could banish me like the last queen. Or worse, he could kill me. And she says, no, I'm not going to do it. And she gives word back to Mordecai that she won't do it. Mordecai then, here's Esther's words. This is verse 12. The words that were reported to him, in verse 13 it says, He sent this answer back. This was his reply to Esther. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will rise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. 
Okay, let's take a break from the story. Um, what can we learn from this? Here's how, in my opinion, my understanding of how we should interpret Scripture. Okay, this is a story, a true story from the Old Testament. So we have to take it at that value. This is something that Mordecai said to Esther. And we have to take the story at that. Mordecai did not say this to us. This is not something that we can walk away from and say, I have to do this because it was written in here. This is what Mordecai said to Esther. But I do believe that we can learn some lessons from it. I do believe that we can take these lessons and what he said to her and say, then how do we apply them to our lives? And what can we learn from God throughout all of Scripture and how God um, works through us in all of this? So there are three things that Mordecai is saying to Esther. Number one is this. Don't think that you'll escape. Don't think that you'll escape. Somebody's going to find out that you're a Jew. And when they find out you're a Jew, whether you're the queen or not, you will probably die. So you're either going to die going to the king to tell him and ask him, or you're going to die afterwards. So either way, don't think you'll escape. Guys, I think the same with us. Just because we are believers in the creator of the universe doesn't mean that our life here on this earth is going to get any easier. Sometimes it might even get harder. We're still going to have trials. We're still going to have trouble. There is still sin in this world, and we have to suffer through the consequences of that sin, whether it's our own sin or somebody else's that affects us. We are still going to have to walk through some valleys. We still have some tough days ahead of us. Just because we are believers in Jesus and what God has done doesn't make it any easier for us. Now, I do believe that we can get to hope a little bit easier that we have more hope than the rest of the world that doesn't believe in a God of grace. I believe that we can have peace like others can't have that don't believe in God. There are things that come with God that we get that others don't have, but we still walk through it just like everyone else. Don't think that we escape just because. Here's the second thing I think we learned from this. If you don't do something, God will send someone else to do it. If you don't follow the will of God... God's will is still going to happen. He's not, he's not dependent on us for his will to happen. He is still God, and he's going to make his thing work. I, I'm reminded of the Lord's Prayer when Jesus prays, and he teaches us to pray. May his will be done on earth here as it is in heaven. God's will is going to happen whether we are a part of it or not. I think he gives us options and choices. Devin, do you want to be a part of this? Here's your opportunity. If not, I'm still going to make it happen. Somebody else is going to do it, but I'm giving you the chance to follow through and to work with me on it. One example, it's an easy example um, of this, and I'll give you some uh, an overview of it, but it was many years ago here at Crestview, and I have the opportunity to know some things about um, all of us that not everyone else knows. And we had a family that went through a sudden death. Um, it, was a, it was a sudden death in the family. They were it was unexpected. And they didn't have the resources, the um, insurance to pay for the funeral services. And through that time period, um, the funeral home actually worked with them and put them on a payment plan. I found out about that payment plan. And a couple years later, I was actually in at the funeral home and talking to the guys there. And because of my connections, I, I just asked them, I said, how much is left for this family? And they told me. And, and it wasn't a lot. It was enough to be a little bit of a burden for them still, but not enough that it couldn't be handled. And so I even went home, we talked, April and I talked about it, and we said, we should do something about that. I think we can make that work. We could be a blessing for someone else. And then it just sat there. 
and I didn't make it happen. And I felt like God was calling us to do something about this, and we had an opportunity to step in and to bless somebody else, and it didn't happen. And it wasn't but a month or two later, and that same person, I was hearing them tell a story, and they told a story to someone else, and they said, yeah, I feel like this weight has just been lifted off my shoulders because I just paid off our bill at the funeral home. And I was so happy for them, but at the same time inside I went, oh, that was supposed to be me. God had led me to a place and a point where I was supposed to support and help somebody else, and he gave me an opportunity to do that, and I didn't step in. Now, it still happened. God still took care of it, but I didn't get to be a part of what God was doing at that and I wonder how many times if I'm not paying attention, if I'm not looking, if God isn't just, you know, beating me over the head and pushing me into it, that I make choices and I say, no, I'm not going to do that. And I miss out on a will or a plan that God has in place. He's still going to do it. It's your choice. Do you get to be a part of what God's doing or not? And I believe that sometimes he puts you in that position. That's the third thing I think we can learn from what Mordecai taught to Esther is this, that God has positioned you exactly where he wants you for such a time as this. What is it for you? Where has he placed you? What is he building up in you? Now, I get this. I don't think every single day in your life you face a life-altering decision to follow God or not follow God or do something big for God or not. It might come along once or twice or three or four times, I don't know, in your lifetime where you have a big option like Esther does to a game changer, life changer for yourself or someone else. I'm not sure we face those every single day, but what I do understand is I believe that God is building you today for that decision someday. That what you do today and your choices to be obedient to God today will build And if you're obedient to God today and you're obedient to God tomorrow and you're obedient to God the next day, that there's going to come a day where God's going to lay something in front of you to say, here's your choice now. Here's a bigger one. You can make this decision to follow or not. And if you're building to that, God will prep you and God will put in front of you something to plan for such a time as that for you to make a big decision for him. But we've got to be obedient through the small days, through the regular days, and how we live our lives leading up to that point. So this is what Esther did. After she heard this response from Mordecai, who she trusts, who raised her, she put word out then to the rest of the Jews. And she said, all right, let's, let's do this. Let's pray. I need everybody. I can't do this alone, so let's pray together. Let's pray and fast. And for three days, they all prayed and fasted. And after that time, Esther comes back, and she has made her bigger decision. She says, okay, I'll do it. I'll go to the king, even though it's against the law, she says. Verse 16, and if I perish, I perish. Famous line from the book of Esther. I'm going to follow God, and it might cost me my life here on this earth, but I'm willing to do whatever it takes. Now, here's the tricky part in it. She doesn't just walk down the hall and barge into the king's room and say, hey, I've got some beef with you. i got something to take care of. I want to tell you. I want to give you a piece of my mind because that doesn't always work for us. You have to work it a little bit. Sometimes God will lead you down a different path to get to the same results. So she comes up with a plan, and it takes two different dinners. There's two different dinners that she starts to plan, and she puts out this invitation. One, she invites the king, King Xerxes, and two, she invites Haman. 
the number one guy to the king. Right? And she invites these two guys to have a banquet, a meal, just the three of them. Well, to a guy like Haman, this is pretty exciting. He's ego-driven. He thinks a lot of himself. So he's thinking, this is great. I get to be invited to dinner with the king and the queen. I must be pretty important. So they get done with dinner. They're having dessert. And the king turns to the queen and says, what's the reason we're here? Do you have something to say? Is there something you need to tell us? And she holds off on this one. She doesn't let him know. She says, actually, what I would like to do, I enjoyed this so much. Can we do this again? How about tomorrow night? Can we do this tomorrow night? Well, the king says, sure, I, I guess so. Let's, let's do this again. This was good food. Let's do, I, I can do it tomorrow night. Haman, he's thinking, absolutely. Dinner two nights in a row with the king and queen? I'm in. I must be really, really important. So he leaves that dinner thinking, I'm the best guy in the world. Everybody's bowing down to me. I just got invited to, until he runs into Mordecai. And Mordecai doesn't bow to him. Now, you know how this goes. When you're riding high, when you're feeling good about yourself, when things are going well for you and somebody criticizes you or somebody critiques you, cuts you off at the knees, you go from here to here really quick, it hurts. Sometimes if you're already there and somebody criticizes you, you're like, yeah, I already know. <laughs> I agree. But when you're, when you're um, ego-driven, right, and you're up here, Haman is like, this is the worst. So he goes home and he's fuming mad, even though he's got invited to dinner twice by the queen. He goes home mad because Mordecai won't bow to him. And he tells all of his buddies, and so they build something. They, they convince him that it's not worth it. He's a Jew. He's going to die anyway. Let's just start with him. And let's, let's show all the Jews what's going to happen. So they build this big thing. It's like a couple stories high. They're going to put him on display as they kill him. And that's what they spend their night doing. They don't sleep that night because they're building the thing to kill Mordecai. Well, there's someone else that doesn't sleep that night, and that's the king. King Xerxes, he also doesn't sleep. I don't know if it was the food, indigestion, whatever. He's up getting some Rolaids. He just can't sleep. And you know what you do when you can't sleep, right? You watch TV. Well, I didn't have TV then, so he's going to read. If that might be your second choice, I'm going to read a little bit. So he starts to read, but it's not him reading. He actually wakes somebody else up, right? It, um, he needs that company to help him. So somebody else is reading to him, and what are they reading? They're reading the official records of the king and his kingdom. Guess which day they actually read? They actually turn and read about the story of when Mordecai saved the king's life. And so he stops him and he says, hey, let me ask you a question. Did, did we ever do anything for that guy, Mordecai? And they say, no, nothing ever happened for him. And the king says, we have to celebrate that. He has to be rewarded for saving my life. So he wakes up the next morning excited that he's going to celebrate somebody's life and what they did for him. And Haman is excited because he wakes up and he's thinking he's going to kill Mordecai today. So the king calls in Haman and says, all right, I, I need your advice. I need some help. There is a guy in our kingdom who has been super great for the king. And Haman goes, yeah, I know. All right. It's all about me, right? And whenever you have an ego-driven person, it's all about them. So he's thinking everything the king is saying is about him. This guy helped save my life. He's been so good to us. He's a faithful worker. What should we do for him? And Haman says, oh, I know what you should do for me. I mean, for him, you should have a parade. You should put a royal robe on him. You should make everybody bow down to him. You should give him, name a day after him. That'd be awesome. And the king says, great, make that happen. For Mordecai. 
And Haman goes, oh, really? I was actually, he doesn't say it, but he's thinking, I was going to kill him today. Now I have to give him a parade. So he throws his parade, and the whole time he's just fuming mad, right? He just can't handle it. But he knows he's going to dinner again with the king and the queen. So he goes into dinner with the king and the queen, and as they're sitting around dinner, it comes to dessert again. And at dessert, the king says, all right, queen, why are we here? Tell me what's going on. That's when she reveals everything. You see, up to this point, the king didn't even know that he had married a Jew. She had kept this a secret. No one asked. She didn't tell. She just became the queen. The king didn't know that she was a Jew. The king also really didn't realize, because he'd been tricked into it, that he had signed a decree that was going to kill all of the Jews. And she revealed this whole plan that the Jews were all going to die, that her Um, cousin Mordecai, who they just celebrated and gave a parade for, was a Jew, and that he was going to die, and that his queen was going to die. The king says, who did this? Who set all this up? And the queen was able to say, he did. Haman. Well, that confused the king. He didn't know what to do. He said, I need a break. I need some fresh air. He steps out of the room for just a minute. During that time period, Haman starts to beg for his life to the queen. He approaches her, which she can't do. It's against the law. And he reaches out to touch her just as the king walks back into the room and says, keep your hands off my queen. He steps back up, right? He actually walks out with Haman and says, that's it. We can't have this. I don't trust you. You are now going to be the one who's going to die. Oh, look, what is that? Somebody just built something (laughs) to kill people with. It was meant for Mordecai. And Haman is actually the one who dies in this story. And the Jews are saved. The people of God are saved because Esther was willing to take a stand what about us? Where are you at in this? Where's your life at right now? What kind of stand do you need to take? Where has God placed you and what is he building in you? Maybe you don't have that big thing today that you're taking a stand on and your future's you know, at stake with it. Maybe that's not today. But I think we can look at this and say there were a couple people in the story that took a stand. One was Mordecai and he took a spiritual stand. He was not willing to bow to anything else. No other God was going to get his heart. No other God was going to get who he was. He took a stand spiritually. Maybe for you it's the first step. Maybe you've never taken that step before. You need to take that step today. And say, I'm going to choose to follow God. To trust and believe in Jesus as my Savior and what he did for me. To take a spiritual stand. And as I see through the story, it doesn't always mean that you wave a big banner that you walk into a room and let everybody know verbally that, that you're a Christian, that you're a believer. Maybe it's just how you live day to day. Maybe it's just you taking a spiritual stand every single day and how you live, what you do, what you don't do. And God builds that up. And there may be a day where you have to stand out and take that stand, but he might just be living through you. Maybe for you, it's what Esther did, and it's a positional stand. She said, all right, then I'm going to take this positional stand. And because of who she was as the queen, she was able to take a stand that nobody else could. Maybe that day is today for you, but maybe that day is coming where God is building into you a time where you're going to be called to take a stand. Maybe it's with your family. Maybe it's with your work. 
And maybe you don't know what is going to happen after that. After you take that stand, you're not sure what your future will be like, but yet you're trusting that God is going to fulfill and keep his promises. That if we take a stand for him, he'll be there. Here's the crazy part to me about this book. It's the only book in the Bible where God is not mentioned. Even when Mordecai was standing up for his God and not bowing down to Haman, he still didn't mention his God. He just took the stand and said, I'm not going to bow to you. And from that, this is what I learn and from what I see, even when you don't hear God, even when you don't see God, even when you don't sense his presence and you're questioning whether he's there or not, he is. God is still a huge part of the story. Whether he's mentioned or not, God is a part of the story. And even during the time periods where you're not sure if he's there or not, he is. And I think we can trust and rely that God is still there, whether we see him or hear him that day. And he's doing something amazing. And someday, I think, we're going to be called to take that stand, whether it's spiritual, positional. If we keep trusting in him, we'll have what we need to take that step and that stand for him someday. Let's do this. We're going to um, prepare for a time to remember what Jesus did for us and the stand that he took for us to show us that grace and love. If you would, let's stand together and sing as we prepare for that time.